Section 3 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bosom of the Eternal Father, Part 3. But there was another choice of his which leads our ignorance into still more hopeless depths of helplessness. In the bosom of the Father, the Word chose his eternal companions, the elect among angels and men. We know that all angels and all men were created for him and to be his companions. We know that he desires the eternal companionship of them all. We shrink with righteous horror from supposing that the permission of evil was granted simply that he might take occasion by it to ruin everlastingly multitudes of creatures, whom it is of faith that he loved intensely. We cannot tell why the two creations of angels and of men should have been created in a sinless liberty, which needed not this permission to its freedom. We are absolutely certain from what he has revealed of himself that there were reasons in infinite goodness that it should be so, and that the freedom by which angels and men merit and sin was suitable to his eternal designs of creative love. We know also that the permission of evil was not necessary to the exhibition of his justice, because his justice is more wonderfully illustrated in the exaltation of Mary than in the condemnation of sinners. We know furthermore that his choice of his elect in no wise interfered with the liberty of any one of them, and yet incomprehensible mystery that it was truly an efficacious choice. Whom he foreknew he also predestinated. This is the nearest approach which he himself allows us to the solution of this mystery. It was not a choice only, it was a foreknowledge also, and it was not a foreknowledge only, it was a choice also. He himself will not allow us to contemplate this mystery otherwise than in the sweet confidence which the theological virtue of hope imparts to us, that we ourselves were among the number of those elect whose correspondence to his grace and participation in his glory gladdened his eye from all eternity. Meanwhile, this is one of the darkest parts of that marvellous life of elections which he led before the beginnings of actual creation. We can trust him for it. No one can be astonished at getting out of his depth in God. We shall not have a just idea of the life of the Word in the bosom of the Father if we keep out of sight his wonderful jubilee in the choice of his elect, and we fearlessly adore a joy which we know must have rested on an absolutely boundless love, for the justice of an all-holy love is a justice which even those who suffer from it cannot reasonably gainsay. He chose also the glory which his sacred humanity was to enjoy. He chose that dignity and splendor of his body which he should merit for it himself in his three and thirty years, from the first instant of his conception to the moment of his death, and he looked with complacency on the glory and blessedness which was thus to be enjoyed by that flesh which he should take from Mary, and with which he should feed the generations of men in the realities of the blessed sacrament. We may conceive that when he foresaw his passion, he felt an increased tenderness to speak thus foolishly of eternal things, for that body which was to be the instrument of those terrific sufferings whereby he should redeem the world. He chose also that exaltation of his holy name, which he also merited himself, and which represents the whole history of his church, and the wonders of his saints, and the supernatural chronicles of religious orders. He chose too, among the things which he himself should merit, the magnificence of his judicial power by which he should judge the world in his human nature rather than his divine, and by which he began from the first moment of his conception to judge every soul of man that passed from this life to another. 
he exulted in the immensity of glory which his sacred humanity should give to the adorable justice of God by the exercise of this judicial power alone. He foresaw his judgment of his sinless mother, and rejoiced unspeakably in the wise righteousness with which he apportioned to her merits their wonderful rewards. He foresaw his judgment of St. Joseph, whom but a moment before he had assisted to die with filial solicitude, and the thought was dear to him of the words which should confirm to his glorious foster-father the intensity of his peace in Limbus for a while, and the admirable splendour of that throne in heaven which he should enjoy. He looked over the gigantic ocean of human actions and merits, and his justice exulted royally in beholding not one trivial kindness, not one single cup of cold water forgotten or unrewarded, or rewarded otherwise than with a divine munificence in all that astonishing multitude of things which he should have to judge. It was the sacred humanity scattering the largesse of the divine justice profusely over all creation. His spotless holiness, too, found matter for true and solemn jubilation in those other awards of severity, awards slowly made, yet without reluctance, when the measure of slighted mercy is filled up, whereby the majesty of an offended God is vindicated with a rigour which only the unrequited love of a creator can display. He chose also to be indebted to his own merits for the mysterious reunion of his body, blood, and soul, in the glorious mystery of the resurrection, the nearest approach which merit could make towards the hypostatic union, unless perchance he merited the extension of that union to those fresh additions to his body which age and growth and food added to it. He chose also the countless graces which he should merit for the children of men, and what he should merit also for the world of angels. How many sciences were opened to his view, how many abysses of rapturous contemplation outstretched before him, in this one matter of his merits, his election of them, their kind, their number, their value, their beauty, their operation, both for himself and others. One little section of this fair world of choices were enough to fill a created spirit with bliss for all eternity. Yet all these glories which his sacred humanity merited for itself were as nothing to those which belonged to it in right of the hypostatic union, the unmerited fountain of all its surpassing splendours. The glories which his divine filiation conferred upon his humanity were the objects of an eternal choice, in which we may reverently conceive the word to have exalted with a still more marvellous delight. The glory of his soul lay beyond the reach even of his far-stretching merits. Vasquez went so far as to teach that, even by the absolute power of God, he could not have merited the glory of his soul, in which opinion we might venture to differ from him. Nevertheless, most true it is that in the bosom of the Father the Word chose the beatific glory of His soul, the immensity of its infused science, the magnificence of its habitual grace, the grace of headship, His royalty, His priesthood, and the boundless supremacy of His spiritual power, as seven wide and deep and resplendent creations lying within the compass of His human soul and lying outside the influence of His own amazing merits. All these glories he chose with ineffable exaltation, and he exalted the more in choosing that they should flow from his divine sonship, and not from his merits. It was his choice that the hypostatic union should endow his sacred humanity not merely with the capabilities of meriting immense glories, but directly and of itself with those splendours which should be its greatest and most wonderful magnificences. 
we have but got to think for a moment of the glory of his soul, of its science and its grace, in order to see what almost illimitable fields of jubilant contemplation lay before the word in the bosom of his father, merely respecting the created nature which it was decreed he should assume. There was a heaven of divine joys in the multitude of manifold choices which lay before him, and to which his own decrees with beautiful compulsion drew him. It is twice said of heaven, first by a prophet and then by an apostle, that its joys are absolutely inconceivable by the mind of men, and that these joys have been prepared by God for those who love him, prepared as if God had taken pains about them and spent time over them, in order to make them a gift worthy of his magnificence. Yet, from what theology teaches us, how marvellous is the picture which we can make to ourselves of the joys of heaven, to what sublime heights faith elevates our imaginations, how grand are the conceptions which we can form of that glorious home, even now in the darkness of our exile. Nevertheless, as scripture tells us, the reality of its grandeur, it has never entered into our minds to conceive. The joys of men on earth are almost as countless as their souls. The joys of the angels are above our comprehension, but they far outstrip those of men both in multitude and in magnificence. We can imagine hosts of delights arising from intellectual enjoyment, or again from our affections, or again from the supernatural tastes which our souls acquire through grace. We can multiply these into fabulous sums, we can magnify them into gigantic forms by the thought of God, His power, His wisdom, and His love. We can conceive of them all as blessedly fixed in a secure eternity, and our own natures unspeakably widened and deepened for new capacities of joy. But beyond all this there lies a world of heavenly joys, which we do not suspect because it is not in our power to conceive their kinds or their methods of operation. Who can dream what will come of seeing God as he is? Now all this multitude of joys rose up at the choice of the word in the bosom of the Father. There was not one which he did not devise and create and stamp with the deepest impress of his love. He set them aside for each spirit of angel and soul of man which should enter into his joy. He proportioned them with an exuberant liberality which was also at the same time an unerring justice. He made them special to each spirit and soul that should enjoy them. He counted their infinity, weighed their ecstatic thrills, and measured to each spirit the measure of the light of glory which should strengthen him to bear much impetuous excess of joy. And the whole was to him a work of the most unutterable gladness and divine complacency. He chose too that fresh outpoured sunshine over immortal souls in heaven which should be cast by his sacred humanity in the pleasures of the glorified senses after the resurrection of the body. He saw heaven suddenly flushed with a new verdure and its gardens blossoming with the translucent bodies of his elect as if they were multiplied images of himself voiceless echoes of light to the light that streams from the Lamb himself. One choice more, and we will close our list of the thrice three choices of the word. The vision of sin lay before him. He saw it all, as we can never see it, in its intensely horrible nature, in the breadth of its empire, in its radical opposition to God, in the tremendously fearful doom wherewith the divine justice would ultimately suffocate it. It lay before him, but his tranquillity was unmoved. Not a breath of disturbance passed even over the surface of his blessedness. Not one of his decrees was turned aside, they all flowed on in their immutable channels of eternal love. But a new choice arose before him, the sphere of his justice was widened, while the objects of his love were multiplied. 
he added to the choices he had already made of his soul and body. He chose now the power of suffering, the capability of feeling sorrow, the vibrations of sensible fear, the infirmity of wonder, the emotions of human anger. He chose poverty and shame and death and the cross. Over the bright and glorious destiny of the mother of the impassable humanity, in which he would have come, he drew a mysterious cloud of impenetrable dollars, and the great queen of heaven was magnified beneath its shadows. He marked out for himself a pathway of blood to the hearts of his sinful creatures, those at least who bore the same nature which he himself had elected to assume. The elder family of angels he passed over in their fall, but not in disregard. They fell into the gulf of his justice and were drawn in and swallowed up forever. Now Bethlehem and Calvary lay before the word as objects of intense desire and of what we have dared to call divine impatience. But there was no stir in the bosom of the Father. The pulses of the divine life were not quickened for a moment. Nothing was precipitated. The decrees went on with irresistible slowness, like the huge glowing lava streams down the flanks of Etna, only that these were creative, prolific, fertilizing streams of wisdom and of love. Still every moment was the Son eternally generated of the Father, still every moment was the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Not a sound was heard, not a sight was seen. There was no time to lapse by unaccounted. There was no vacancy, no void, no hollow, which might one day be the room of space. There was only the unfixed yet immovable life to which neither past nor future reach. There was the blessed God. Such were the occupations of the word in the bosom of the Father. Such was the life of that person to whom our special attention is drawn, because he was the person who was to assume a created nature. It was, so far as that assumption was concerned, a life of choices, and each choice was as much the choice of the Father and the Holy Ghost as it was of the Word himself. Such was his everlasting life in the bosom of the Father, creatureless and yet not without creatures, only distinguishable to us in its outermost edges where the decrees of creation shine upon its waters. It was a creatureless life because creatures were not yet in actual existence, it was a life with creatures because they were in reality eternal in the divine mind. To us it is as if we were gifted with preternatural sight and could look up an endless vista, broad at its opening as the breadth of the all but boundless creation, and rising up in flights of marvellous gigantic steps onward and upward, narrowing and narrowing to a point, with the decrees of God like marble statues standing in speechless rows on either hand, and the eternal splendours shining white on their colossal figures until the vista enters into God, and the beautiful simplicity of immense creation lies visibly in the predestination of Jesus, and flows out from the central fountain of the undivided Trinity, an emanation of the divine life in infinite separation from it. Then actual creation comes, and still God lies in his eternal Sabbath, even while he works. Time and the world lapse by, and far off is the tranquillity of God. What can ever equal in magnificence the first outward burst of the Omnipotent, when the angels broke forth out of nothing in cataracts of light, more numerous than the sands of the sea, each of them huge worlds of fire, with the intellectual effulgence of their majestic spirits beaming far and wide in transcending loveliness? We are blinded by the very thought, the eyes of our mind ache as with lightning when we picture to ourselves this first thunderstorm which broke forth at an instant from the feet of the inaccessible throne of God. 
At the selfsame moment, out of nothing, rose the ponderous universe of matter, far outspread fields of the gauze-like breath of an immeasurable heat, and the scarce visible tissue of simplest elements, perhaps of one element only, but of a myriad myriad forms, wheeling off and condensing into numberless huge worlds, all chained together by the filaments of an invisible attraction. There was a magnificence, even in chaos, which fed the glory of the Creator. Then perhaps came the vast geological epochs, revolving cycles of ages unnumbered, because there was none but God to number them. Marvellous floras covered our own earth like a gorgeous tapestry. Wonderful faunas filled the seas with life and took possession of the continents. All the while God was tranquil, and time and the world lapsed by. The days of Adam came and went, and the strangeness of antediluvian life. The flood came and did its stern work, and the pastoral plains of Mesopotamia were studded with the tents of the patriarchs, until God's love lit upon the hills and dells of Syria. The exodus of the chosen people from the typical Egypt, the wilderness, the kingdom, the captivity, the widespread heathendom, and the immaculate conception succeeded one another as we speak, but in truth lay all present at once to the eye of God, and his same tranquil life went on. The incarnation was realized in Nazareth and made manifest in Bethlehem. The beautiful ages of the Catholic Church began and came to an end in the Valley of Judgment. Each individual soul lay out before God, clear and separate, in an orbit of its own until all met in conjunction in the same Valley of Judgment. Then, we shall speak thus hereafter, when all is past, and it is even now passing quietly, this family of creation was gathered home into the bosom of the Father by the Word who ever dwelt there, and by means of His Incarnation. All this went by, and there was the same tranquil life of God, unchanged, unchangeable. Yet God was not inactive. Language cannot express to us in its reality the overfulness of God's concurrence with everything, or the thrilling omnipotence of His penetrative activity. The mystery is how he can so concur, so interpenetrate and underlie all matter and all spirit, and yet forever be by himself in unutterable and adorable unconfusion with created things. Thus all this life in the bosom of the Father, so far as it regarded outward things, was from eternity steadily advancing to the assumption of a created nature by an uncreated person. All that is outside of God therefore bears exclusively on this. There is no exception. Yet the tranquil, eternal life within that bosom went on as ever. And now, we speak as we must one day speak, the mighty populous heavens lie with their worshipping crowds at the very feet of God. The activity of heaven far transcends the feeble agitations of earth. Its power, with Jesus and Mary and the angels and the souls, is fearfully majestic to think upon. Its sciences are like the sciences of God. Its loves are like the procession of the Holy Ghost. The realities of its doings and its energies and its discoveries and its contemplations and its beauties are simply unimaginable by us who know only the feverish intermittent indolence of mortal civilization. Its very created infirmities are hidden, almost healed, by the near shadow of the uncreated. Yet that tranquil life in the bosom of the Father is unchanged. As it was in the creatureless eternity, so is it now. Every moment is the Son eternally generated of the Father. Every moment is the Holy Ghost proceeding from the Father and the Son. Everywhere there is the blessed God, tranquil and self-sufficing, unchanging and unchangeable. And we, it is the only change, happy we, are lying in the lap of His eternity. 
But between those two points, between the eternity before creation and the eternity after the judgment shall have fixed the endless lot of this family of the incarnation, there is the point to each of us which is our present, and in which we are arduously working our way home to our Heavenly Father. Our past and our future are both in our today. How is our today, by the side of the bosom of the Eternal Father and of the Divine Life, going on therein? Let us revive our faith, and the world will at once drop down below us, and the chains of a thousand petty interests fall from us. There is no liberty of spirit except when we are breathing the air of God. Let us mount up on high and look at the earth as it lies beneath us. There are creatures born and dying every moment. The one have to be started on their destinies which are unending, the others to be seen through that last conflict in which all the threads of life are to be gathered up, and the doom to be not merely according to the past life, but according to the dispositions of that dread today. There is all the turmoil of a resonant world rising up towards the throne of God. The thunders of the imprisoned fires of hell reach his ears. There are the high winds and storms of the enormous atmosphere, and below it the uneasiness of the throbbing, feverish volcanoes, and the perpetual, tremulous, elastic shiverings of the crust of the earth. Above there is the dazzling velocity of stupendous revolving orbs in mute, unechoing space, the wild rushing of comets which law is spurring on at such headstrong wind, and here and there among the countless worlds the crash of some catastrophe which is part of the uniformity of their system. God has to be busy with all this. Then down in the forests of seaweed on the pavement of the ocean, under the bark and among the leaves of the forests of the land, amid the thick, viewless insect life of the populous air, he is busy also, minutely occupied, incessantly occupied, personally occupied, with every individual form of life. Yet at this moment there is no stir over the pellucid abysses of his shoreless life. His bosom is all tranquil as before. The father, calm and dread and beautiful, whose freshness eternity cannot age, is in repose and majesty. The sun is still issuing forth in his bosom, noiselessly begotten in the ravishing splendours of an eternal generation. The Holy Spirit is still the actual preceding jubilee of both, outflowing, distinct, eternal, the same one life. But at this hour, somewhere in creation, that bosom is laid bare to spirits and to souls, so that they can see it as it is. This is a change from the old, uncreatured life, but the change is altogether outside the unchangeable. There is no time, no lapse, no succession there. There are no measurable epochs in that unadvancing, stationary, self-sufficing, indescribably blissful life. Progress is the radical infirmity of creatures. Yet the creature time has surrounded the eternal and uncreated with its sweet growths and secular harvests in rings of created beauty and supernatural holiness. He is showing them the vision of himself, localized somewhere. Radiant fringes of saints and angels are stirring in his light, as if they were the edges of his royal robes, and prostrate multitudes lie like a golden pavement, thrilling with light around his throne. But are we sure the change is all outside? The faith will not allow us to doubt of it. Then is it most true that faith is more than sight, for it looks as if there was a change inside, Far down amid the central lightnings of the Godhead, those lightnings which feed instead of blighting the spirits and souls of creatures, it is as if there was a human babe, not an adopted foundling, whom his mercy has taken up in its necessity, 
but his own eternal idea realized in time, the cause of all creation whatsoever, the cause of all that makes up our present life today, except the evil which may hang about us like a clinging mist. That babe is the causal idea of all things. The spirits and the souls see him there and worship him with the thunders of ecstatic song. Yet still the divine life goes on with its unsuccessive, endless, unbeginning pulsations. Still is the Son being begotten, still is the Spirit proceeding, still is the Father the unbegotten fountain of the Godhead. Lonely, with leagues between, angels and souls far off, as earth counts farness, nearest to the throne sits a virgin mother, a creature who once was nothingness, who would fall back into nothingness this hour, if God did not fulfill, sustain, uphold her with all his might and main, as it were, by his essence, presence, power, grace, and glory. The babe in the bosom of the father is the likeness of that created mother, and is ever looking out at her, as if her bosom might tempt him from that bosom of the father. She is ever looking at him, as she taught St. John to look at him, in the beginning, in the bosom of the father. This is Mary's fixed view of her child. This is John's fixed view of his dear master. He lays in that dread bosom in idea from all eternity. He lies there at this hour with his incarnation realized. It is the babe of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, yesterday and today and the same forever. End of section 3